You're listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, today, beloved, we will conclude our time in Romans chapter 11. Uh, this may, makes uh, marks really a break of one sort in Paul's letter to the Romans. Many who have read it understand that chapters 1 through 11 are filled with effectively the doctrine of the faith. Paul lays out for us with great clarity the gospel, God's one plan to save, the eternal hope, the unshakable hope that we have through Christ, and how God is utterly faithful and has kept every single one of his promises. And then he will pivot, beginning in Romans chapter 12, to think then about what that means for how we live together. So this is the conclusion of Romans 11, but it is a conclusion in one sense of a much bigger section of Paul's letter than even just this one chapter. As I acknowledged last week, there are a number of things going on in the world of which you are aware. There are things going on in the world pertaining to the nation state of Israel, terrorist attacks and war and things like this. Perhaps those things are still in your mind this morning as you come to this service. We trust the Lord with the timing of those world events, and we trust the Lord with the timing of this sermon series in this local church. As I acknowledged last week, I will acknowledge again today, whenever preaching through an epistle, sermons inevitably are connected to one another because oftentimes the argument of the apostle is very much connected. It builds on itself. Today, that will be true. So I would commend to you the two previous messages, even specifically from Romans 11, because I will not be able to say everything today in a way that is full-orbed. I won't be able to nuance everything. And so I trust that if you see fit, you will listen to those two sermons. They can be found uh, on our website. So with all of that, please open your Bibles to Romans 11. And I'm going to try to serve us well by giving us some context of the chapter as a whole before we look to verse 25 and following. So while you're turning, hopefully this will be helpful for us. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11, Paul, in light of everything that he's written, asks a question. Has God rejected his people? In other words, has Israel been utterly forsaken by God? And his answer to that question is, by no means. He says, effectively, there are Israelites who have been saved, there are Israelites who are being saved, and there are Israelites who will be saved. And I, Paul, am exhibit A a genuine Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. And then in verse 2, Paul makes the assertion that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God is saving all of the children of promise. Paul then asks his readers, do you remember what Elijah said to God about his fellow Israelites? Do you remember how bleak it looked in the time of this iconic prophet, how he appealed to God against his kinsmen, how Elijah, from his perspective, thought there are none left among the faithful. But then Paul asks, how did God respond to him? What did he say to Elijah that he had kept for himself 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal, right? I am saving my people. I have kept My 7,000, seven by the cube of 10, this great multitude who have not bowed the knee. In other words, Elijah, you're mistaken. In verses 5 and 6, Paul pulls it together for us. Just like it was in the time of Elijah, where it may seem as though the Lord is not saving anyone, but in fact, he is saving his people, just like it was then, so it is at the present time. God is saving a remnant. And this remnant is chosen by grace. What shall we say to all this, Paul asks? Well, that Israel, by and large, failed to obtain what it was seeking, which we know is salvation through the pursuit of righteousness. But the elect, Paul says, obtained it. The elect were given righteousness through faith in Christ. The rest were hardened. In verses 11 to 16, we considered last week how Israel's stumbling, Israel's wholesale, generally, rejection of the Christ 
was not so that they would just be lost forever. God had and has a purpose in Israel's stumbling. That great purpose is that all of his elect Gentiles might be saved and through the salvation of Gentiles that the entire elect remnant of Israel might be saved. The salvation of Gentiles and the salvation of Jews go together. In God's economy of salvation, one works for the advancement of the other. In verses 17 to 24, Paul exhorts Gentile Christians to be humble and grateful. For they are saved, certainly by the Lord's work, but they are saved because of the Jews. Salvation is of the Lord, amen, and salvation is of Israel. The Christ came through them and from them. When he came, Jesus came first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The gospel was first preached to the Jews. The first Christians were Jewish. And the church was founded by Jewish apostles. And then Gentiles have been grafted in to the one people of God. This has been done by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, says Paul, there is nothing inherent to Gentile believers in which they should boast. Never get this confused to think that you are somehow better or not as bad as your Jewish friends might be. Gentile Christians, Paul reminds us that we come with nothing, looking to Christ alone for everything. And so the order of the day is that you, Gentile believers, would continue to trust Jesus only. And if the Israelites, while we're thinking about that Jesus alone, faith in him peace, if the Israelites don't continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted back in. God certainly has the power to do that. And in one sense, it would be easier for him to graft back in the natural branch, Jewish men and women, would be easier for God to do that than it would be to save you Gentiles who were unnatural, who were not close and near to the covenants and the promises of God from of old. So that's Romans 11, 1 through 24. Let's now look to verse 25 through the end of the chapter. Listen now as I read. This is the word of God. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We thank God for his word today and every day. I, my plan for the rest of the time is to preach this text in two parts. And I will go ahead and say that if this is your first time with us, there will be an unusual amount of meditation and application. I trust it will make sense as to why as we make our way through the passage. So part one, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Part one, in this way, all Israel will be saved. We're going to look at verses 25 to 32 
for a little while. In verse 25, if you put your eyes there, Paul begins with these words, lest you be wise in your own sight. So his goal, Paul's goal, is to continue to check the potential pride and arrogance of the Gentile believers in the church of Rome. He does not want them to exult over the Jews that would be in their midst or to look down on them or to treat them with contempt. So how is he going to keep the Gentile believers from pride and arrogance? Well, Paul, yet again, is going to point them to the plan of God to save all of his people through mercy and grace. And he's going to remind them of Israel's primary place in God's plans. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, I don't know what your translation says. I just want to make a brief comment about this. The way that the the ESV renders this particular verse 26 is helpful. And in this way, all Israel would be saved. Your translation might say, and so all Israel will be saved. Don't be tripped up by that. That so is just like the so in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, right? For God in this way loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So Paul is going to tell us how it is. He's going to remind us yet again of how it is that all of the Israel of God will be saved. He is referring back to things that he's already written. He's referring back to things that we have been considering. Specifically, he is referring back to what he had written regarding God's purposes in Israel's stumbling. You remember, I just reiterated these a moment ago. His purposes in Israel's stumbling to save the Gentiles, and then through the saving of the Gentiles to make Israel jealous, and this would result in the ongoing salvation of the elect remnant of Israel. In God's providence, the partial hardening of Israel served to advance the salvation of Gentiles, and the salvation of the Gentiles served to advance the salvation of the remnant of Israel. The advancement of one advances the other. So this brings us to the question, what does it mean that all Israel will be saved? In the context of what Paul has written from the beginning of chapter 9 to now, I'm going to give you my my understanding, and you have the scriptures in front of you. So here is how I understand verse 26, and effectively verses 26 to 32. All Israel refers to the whole people of God. When the Gentiles are grafted into the one people of God, the Jews also are brought to the obedience of faith. And this is how salvation will be completed for the entire Israel of God, which clearly is to be gathered from both Jew and Gentile. And yet, this will be done in such a way that the Jews will retain the preeminent place as the firstborn of the family of God. So in other words, Paul intends to lay out the completion of the kingdom of Christ, which is comprised of people from every tribe and every language and every nation. Paul writes this way in other places. For example, in Galatians 6.16, where he refers to the church as the Israel of God. Surveying Romans 9 through 11, it is from my perspective, as I lay my exposition out in front of you, it is difficult to argue that Paul means that every ethnic Israelite, every ethnic Jew will be saved. Given language that he's been using, chapter 9 and verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Chapter 9 and verse 27, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Chapter 11 and verse 5, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, I magnify my ministry among the Gentiles, Paul says, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. 
Paul's meaning seems to be that in the mysterious way that he has described, the whole people of God will be saved. Elect Gentiles along with the elect remnant of Israel, all of whom are children of promise. We've talked about this in weeks that have gone by. I will briefly reiterate this. Sometimes people hear what what I am saying right now and would call it replacement theology, that the church replaces Israel. That's not at all how we see it. We would understand that what is going on in the one plan of God is fulfillment theology and expansion theology that God worked in and through Israel, that salvation is of the Jews, and that through the nation, God would save the world. And he would bring men and women from every tribe and language and people to faith in the Christ who is of the Jews. Expansion and fulfillment theology of the plan of God that he has orchestrated and worked through the nation of Israel to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul is going to cite Isaiah and Jeremiah to further demonstrate that there will be Israelites who will be partakers of salvation. Remember what he is arguing for. Has Israel been cut off? By no means, he said. There are Israelites who have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved. And he cites the prophets here again to further demonstrate this reality. There will be repentance granted to some remnant of the children of Jacob. Regardless of how bad it looks right now, God will do this and they will be delivered. You can see it. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul is going to speak again to the Gentile Christians in verses 28 and 29. As regards the gospel, they, your Jewish friends, are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Paul acknowledges that the Jews, by and large, were full of animosity toward Jesus and toward the gospel and toward the church. This was for the sake of the Gentile salvation, as he had already explained. But at the same time, the Jews were still loved by God. He had called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. For the sake of their forefathers, God loves the Jewish people. This sounds like Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. For the sake of your fathers, he's doing all this. Why does the Lord love you? Because he loves you. And he's keeping the promises that he made to your fathers. And God's purposes have not changed. It is evident that he has not wholly turned away his kindness and his saving grace to the Jewish people. In verses 30 to 32, Paul's emphasis is on God's mercy. You see how he is continuing to call his Gentile brothers and sisters to look on the Jews with kindness and love and compassion. In verse 30, he reminds them of their own hard-heartedness and how they received mercy. You see it. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but had now have received mercy because of Israel's disobedience, he goes on, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Yet again, Paul points to the plan of God to save the elect remnant of Israel. He's going to do this. This too is through his Mercy. In verse 32, we read these words For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Paul's meaning is simple that all who are saved, whether Gentiles or Jews, are saved by the mercy of God. All. Anyone who ever is saved is saved by the mercy of God. So again this week, I think it is good to make some comments regarding the nation state of Israel and things that are going on in the world. I refer you to the things that I said last week. And I'm going to 
lay out for you why I'm even making these comments here in just a moment. When it comes to the geopolitical entity that is the nation state of Israel, there is a lot of concern that that nation state occupy a certain piece of land in Palestine. There is a lot of discussion about things that need to happen in the future. For instance, the rebuilding of the temple on that particular piece of land. My aim in speaking to these things last week and today is that, of course, I want us to think well, biblically, theologically. But even more specifically, I want us to have a firm grasp on what the mission of the church is. Does the mission of the church entail entering into geopolitics? It's a big question. For my part, and for the part of the elders here, our answer to that question is no. That the mission of the church is to herald Christ. And that the mission of the church is to preach the law and the gospel and to administer the sacraments for the salvation of God's people. God's people who are comprised both of Jews and Gentiles. A right understanding of Romans 11 and a right understanding of God's covenants and promises and their fulfillment help to keep the mission of the church clear. So for the next several moments, I want to particularly consider two things. This is going to be a little bit of a biblical survey that I trust will be helpful to us. Number one, I want to briefly consider land promises to Israel. And then I briefly want to consider, secondly, the rebuilding of the temple. And by that, I mean the third one, not the one that was rebuilt in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. So let's think about land promises. In Ezekiel chapter 34, the Lord said that he himself would search for his sheep and that he would seek for them, and he would rescue them. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land, says the Lord. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. And I will set up for them, over them, one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. There is clearly an ultimate and spiritual fulfillment that is in view in a passage like that. In part, the low-hanging fruit is that David is long dead when those words are written. And so there is a spiritual fulfillment in view. Ezekiel 37, this is right after the well-known account of the Valley of Dry Bones. We find these words, And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations, and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Again, an ultimate spiritual fulfillment has to be in view. Then there's Obadiah, relatively obscure minor prophet, one of the shortest books in all of Scripture. In verse 19 and 20 of Obadiah, there are interesting words penned. Remember that Obadiah was written in the aftermath of the Babylonian army destroying Jerusalem in 586. In verse 19 and 20, the prophet indicates that God's exiled people would one day return to occupy the land that the Lord had given them. But that's not all. The borders that are described in Obadiah 19 and 20, represent an expansion of the land to an even greater scale than it existed under David or Solomon. So the people of Judah, understand, the people of Judah did return from Babylonian captivity. They lived in the land again. And they even rebuilt Jerusalem's wall and rebuilt the temple. We read of that in Ezra and Nehemiah. 
but they would never possess a land as large as what is described in Obadiah 19 and 20. This is because the fulfillment of Obadiah's prophecy is not temporal. It is greater than that. Then we come to Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. When it comes to a land, what were God's people looking for? And when I say God's people, I mean, what were God's saved ones? What were the children of promise? What were they looking for when it comes to a land? Consider these words. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, that's Canaan, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God's children of promise, God's elect from all time, have been looking for a heavenly country, not Canaan, something greater. So think of this when you think about the land promises to Israel. Their ultimate fulfillment is found in the new heavens and the new earth, the eternal land for the people of God. The Lord did give Israel a temporal land for a time. He said, he said that he would do these things for them, and he did them. And those promises are ultimately about something far greater. This is how we should read our Bibles. Next, let's talk about the temple and the fact that it will be rebuilt. First of all, the Ark of Scripture, just really, really high level in terms of God's presence with his people. We begin in Eden. We know that Adam and Eve are banished from that place. We then have the tabernacle where the Lord's presence uniquely dwells. We then have the temple, again, where God's presence uniquely dwells. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and says things like, tear it down and I'll rebuild it in three days. Why? because he is the fulfillment of that. God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus is the presence of God with his people for 33 years. Then, after the ascension of Christ, we have the church, where the Spirit of God dwells collectively in the saints. Finally, we have the new heavens and the new earth, where we will see the Lord as he is, and we will dwell with him. He'll be our God, and we'll be his people. That's the ark of Scripture. A couple of key texts, though. Ezekiel chapter 47, if you want to turn there, please do. The verse 12 verses of Ezekiel 47 are really significant. Ezekiel's vision of the new temple begins in Ezekiel 40. How should we understand this temple, though? It's a massive question. Ezekiel 47 and verse 1. Then he, an angel, right? brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. In verses 3 to 6, there's this progression where they go further and further away from the temple and measure the depth of the water. And it starts ankle deep, and then it's waist deep, and then it's chest deep, and then you can't even wade across it. The water flowing from the temple has become a great river. Then verse 7. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river that is flowing out of the temple of God very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Verse 12, and on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month. 
because the water from, for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Revelation 22, beginning in verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Does that sound familiar? Good. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Think of this when you think about the rebuilding of the temple. Ezekiel's vision of the temple finds its fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth where the throne of God will reside and where he will dwell with us. So that's all part one. Part two of the message today. To God be glory forever. To God be glory forever. We're going to look at verses 33 to 36. Put your eyes back in Romans 11. In verse 33, in light of everything that he's been writing about God's plan of redemption and about his dealings with his people, Paul breaks into spontaneous praise, doxology. He praises the Lord in light of all of these things, and this should be our response too. What else would we do? Like McKenzie said when he welcomed us to church, Our worship is in response to what the Lord has done. The Lord has spoken, we respond. The Lord has acted, we respond. The Lord has rescued us, we respond. With praise, with adoration, with thanksgiving. The Lord is merciful and gracious and wise. He is unfolding his plan of redemption and has seen fit to save the foremost of sinners. And we are of that number. Verse 33, he extols the riches of God's knowledge and wisdom and exclaims that God's judgments and ways are above us and beyond us. Paul says, in other words, marvel at the Lord and what he's done. We have attempted to do that at various points through this series in thinking about the mystery of Christ and the plan of God to save a people. In verse 34, Paul cites Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 13. No one has ever known the mind of the Lord. No one has ever counseled him or taught him anything. It's also quite fitting in Isaiah 40, the Lord comforts his people and promises he'll save them. That's what that chapter is about. In verse 13, specifically, Isaiah praises the wisdom of the Lord in redeeming. Then in verse 35 of Romans 11, Paul cites Job 41, that famous conversation, God's response to Job at the end of the book. He cites Job to convey that God is in no man's debt. There is nothing that any man can bring to God to constrain the Lord in any way. And as many saints have observed through history, this applies first and foremost our salvation. We bring nothing. In verse 36, Paul reiterates truths that we know to be evident. God is the origin of all things. He is the source of all things. He is the end of all things. And all things will one day redound to his glory. So I want to spend the rest of our time Meditating, reflecting together on the glory of God. That's a phrase that's thrown around a lot, but a lot of times it's very amorphous, very ethereal. doesn't have a lot of handles on it. We'll try to put a few on it. And rejoice in the glory of the Lord this morning. 
When it comes to the glory of God, the fact that he is praiseworthy, his honor, the creation declares it. He will be glorified as well in his righteous judgments. And the riches of his glory are seen in his mighty works of redemption. And with all that being said, God's glory is seen most powerfully and most fully in one person. God's glory is seen most powerfully and most fully in the person and the work of Jesus the Christ. In Colossians 1, Paul pens these words. Think about how similar this sounds to Romans 11. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Understand, beloved, that God the Father seeks the glory of God the Son. And the Father is glorified in the Son. We see this all over Scripture. Pointedly, think John 8, when Jesus is having an interchange with a Jewish audience, and he says to them that he doesn't seek his own glory, that I don't pursue my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Jesus repeatedly in his earthly ministry speaks of how the Father glorifies him. The Son, for his part, is also concerned with the glory of the Father. The high priestly prayer, the first few verses of this, we see that where Jesus says very plainly that he has accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do and that he has done it for the sake of the people that the Lord has given him. And then he asks that the Father would glorify him with the glory that he shared with the Father before the foundations of the world. And may it encourage your soul this morning that he then prays for you and me and asks that we would be with him so that we might see that glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. Then there's Philippians chapter 2, a well-known text. Have this mind among yourselves that is the mind of Christ, right? How he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant and he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But what is the purpose of this? What's the end result? that every knee should bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of whom? God the Father. The supremacy of Christ is for the glory of God. If you want to be a person after God's own heart, if you want to be a person who is seeking God's glory, and I trust we all want to be that, then make much of Jesus Christ. Herald his sufficiency. Look to him alone and point others to him. Because in the most pointed and powerful way possible, the glory of God is seen in and through the person and the work of the Savior. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father says our Lord while he was on earth. We have considered the mystery of Christ and have marveled at God's plan of redemption at various points throughout this series. But taking our cue from Paul in our verses today, it is good that we would do that again, but I want to do that from a slightly different perspective. Last week, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, the last half of it, and how Gentiles who were once far off have now been brought in through the blood of Christ and how God is making this one people comprised of Jews and Gentiles. He has brought us all together. He's torn down the dividing wall of hostility. He is building us into one body, which is the church. But then, if you keep reading, 
particularly when you get to verse 8, 9, and 10 of chapter 3, we read some very interesting words. Paul says to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to understand and preach the mystery of Christ, right? This mystery was given, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We have the mystery of God's plan of redemption to save both Jews and Gentiles through Jesus and bring them into the one body of Christ called the church. And this is precisely how God determined that he would declare his glory to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And when we read that language, this is principalities and powers kind of stuff. So for a moment, let's consider how God declares his glory through Christ to rulers and authorities and principalities and powers, and even to Satan himself, the great adversary. Satan, we know, manifested himself in the garden as a snake to tempt Adam and Eve, to ruin God's good creation. Then he took his place as the God of this world. He is the great adversary. The word Satan, that's not a name, it just means adversary. That's his identity. He's the prince of the power of the air. The fallen angels along with him have reigned for quite some time as the gods of the nations. There has always been this great war, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. We see Satan's craftiness in Job 1 and 2. But the Lord foils his plans. The Lord, for his part, keeps and restores his servant Job. Satan shows up again, most pointedly in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Now the parallels with Adam and Eve's temptation, we've talked about at many other points. But you wonder, what is going through the mind of the adversary at that moment? As he shows up to tempt Jesus, in the desert. Remember, Satan is not omniscient. He's very smart. He's very powerful. But he's not all-knowing and he's not all-powerful. We know that in that moment, in that temptation, Jesus was victorious over Satan. In every way that Adam failed, Jesus won. And Satan, after the temptation was over, we read these words in Luke 4.13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, departed from Jesus, until an opportune time. Three years later, we fast forward the clock. Luke 22, verse 3 to 6. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Judas, we know, would betray the Lord Jesus with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then in that moment, as the chief priests and the officers with them were going to arrest Jesus, our Lord spoke these words. Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. At the cross, as Jesus hung there dying, yet again, you wonder, what does Satan think? What does the evil one think? Did he think that he had won? There's no doubt at Calvary that he had bruised Christ's heel. 
But did he realize that Jesus had crushed his head? Jesus gave up his spirit. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man. He then descended to hell to conquer. He bound the strong man and plundered his goods. And he has set God's people free. He rose triumphantly from the grave, victorious over sin, victorious over death, and victorious over the adversary. He rose to reign forever and forever after that. Consider that God the Son was born under the law that he gave. He lived to fulfill its requirements. He died to endure its curse. He died and he rose to conquer the one who has the power of death so that we might no longer be enslaved to the fear of the grave. And that has always been God's plan. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. and How inscrutable are his ways. How does it all end? Pulling together things from the last several weeks regarding the plan of God and Israel and Gentiles and eternal land and even the end of Satan. How does it all conclude? We go to the end of the book. In Revelation chapter 5, There's a great assembly around the throne of God. You may be familiar with the account and how there's this great scroll and no one is worthy to open it. The scroll that needs to be opened for the eternal plans of God to be finally fulfilled, for all of this to be realized, for the consummation to happen. Nobody's worthy to open it. The whole assembly of heaven John, who is having these visions, weeps. And then one of the elders says to him, weep no more. John hears about a lion from the tribe of Judah. That's what he hears. The lion of the tribe of Judah. He is conquered. And then... John looks, and he sees a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He is the one, only he, who is worthy to open the scroll. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David who conquered, and the lamb who was slain in the place of his people. Then in Revelation 7, yet again, John hears something, and then he sees something. He hears about the number, the 144,000. 12,000 people from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. But again, we've got the cube of 10 by the square of 12. The Israel of God, right? He hears the fullness of God's people, 144,000. But then John looks and what does he see? A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. He heard about the lion of the tribe of Judah, he saw a lamb slain. He heard the 144,000. He saw a great multitude that no one can count from every nation. And what is the song? What is the praise? John in Revelation 7 asks who these people are. And one of the elders says to him, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. The time, the last days, the time of the Messiah. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
Therefore, they are before the throne and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Remember that? I'll set over them one shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. He's going to feed them with rich pasture. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In other words, what's the end result of all of this? Satan lost. And Jesus has won. One day we'll preach the book of Revelation here, Should the Lord Tarry and Give Us Life. Series title, I think most convincingly will be Jesus Wins. It's what the book's about. God has saved his Israel. He has saved all of his elect from every tribe and people and language and nation. As for the devil who had deceived them and was thrown into the lake of fire. He was. As for the devil who had deceived them, he was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 20.10. You know the early verses of Revelation 21 reiterating that the heavenly Jerusalem will come down, how the Lord will be with his people, how all of the pain and the sorrow and the heartbreak that we have experienced in this life, all of the tears shed will be wiped away by God himself. And how he will pronounce that it is finished, that he has done it. He's the beginning and he's the end. Then we go to Revelation 22. We already considered the vision of the temple of God, the throne of God, and the river that flows from it. But consider the words from verses 14 to 17 of Revelation 22. These are the words of Christ. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Washed in what? Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. How many times does that show up? One day, beloved, voices will ring out in heaven. One day, we will sing, we will herald that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. You look forward to that day when we are able to sing and herald that reality? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Why? How? because of the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are our God's judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be glory forever indeed. May it be. Let's pray.